You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Green Mountain Medicine. We are excited to be back in the clinic, back on the air, and discussing today the critical topic of women in medicine with two distinguished guests. Today, we are joined by Dr. Polly Parsons, who is the E.L. Amidon Chair and Professor of Medicine at the Lorna College of Medicine, as well as a Medicine Healthcare Service Leader for the University of Vermont Health Network. Dr. Parsons pursued her medical school training at the University of Arizona, and then obtained a residency and pulmonary critical care fellowship at the University of Colorado. We are also joined by Dr. Bridget Mariquin, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology at the University of Vermont Medical Center. She pursued her medical school training at SUNY Upstate before obtaining a residency at the University of North Carolina. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. We are also excited to introduce our guest co-host for this episode, our classmate and friend, Sienna Strolls, who is a former leader of the Lorna College of Medicine chapter of AMWA and an I Am Bound amazing person. Welcome, Sienna. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm happy to be here. So I guess we can go ahead and get started. Our first question for Dr. Mariquin and Dr. Parsons is, how have you seen the experience for women in medicine change over the years? I can start. Um, So I've probably been in medicine a little bit longer than Dr. Mariquin has. Although I'm still only 39, so maybe that's not the case. (laughs) I'm in continuous denial. So I think medicine's um, changed dramatically for women over the years. So when I started medical school, the percent of women in my class was not 50 plus percent as it is now. Um, And when I went into training in um, internal medicine, the percent of women, it was well under a third of the residents that were in my cohort were women. I went into the field of pulmonary critical care medicine, not totally understanding how few women were in that field and continue even as I've gone through leadership positions, the number of women has not been all that great. However, as I look behind me, um, the number of women in medical school has gone up dramatically. The number of women in residency and and especially in internal medicine has gone up dramatically. The pulmonary critical care field is doing extraordinarily well in terms of women. The number of women that are now leaders of pulmonary critical care divisions and are actually chairs of department of medicine um, is extraordinary. Um, I was the first. in terms of being a chair of medicine, and now I have multiple colleagues. So I think um, a number of things happen. A, a a lot more of us have gone into medicine. We've recognized the opportunities and really taken advantage of them. And I think, you know, the more and more role models we have, the easier it makes it. Is it perfect? No. Is it easy? No. But is it better and different? Absolutely. So I probably haven't been in medicine um, that many years shy of Dr. Parsons, but (laughs) I would echo some of the same comments she made that the sheer number of women in medicine has been on the rise since since we both graduated medical school. And the AAMC report just last fall said women now make up just slightly more than 50% of the medical students that we currently have enrolled. So we are 50.5%. Uh, yay for us. And, you know, for me in the, in the world of perioperative medicine, women are slowly infiltrating 
the fields that were historically male dominated. So the fields of anesthesiology, the one that I'm in, general surgery, orthopedics, critical care. So with the increase in women in these fields, and certainly women in medicine overall, there are more women role models, more mentors for these young professionals who are still deciding on their career path. So if primary care is your passion, there tends to be more women in primary care, that's great, but, but it doesn't mean you have to pursue primary care. If a surgical subspecialty or advanced subspecialty, let's say GI or cardiology might pique your interest or pulmonary medicine like Dr. Parsons, it's much more likely you'll find a role model or at least you won't be paving the way for, for women. Like there's, there for sure has been other women ahead of you. The odds are in your favor. And I think, you know, overall medicine, as, as we all know, we've been, on, we've been on teams, whether it's healthcare teams or sports teams or, you know, the orchestra, teams are better when they're more diverse. So I think medicine is getting better the more, divor the more diverse the team is overall. That's incredible to hear. I find it kind of reassuring to see how the representation of women in medicine, internal medicine, internal medicine, subspecialties, and anesthesiology has been improving and progressing over time. Uh, I've been looking at gender disparities in different fields just out of interest. And one thing I'd like to share, I saw in the Medscape's 2019 female physician report, looking at over 19,000 responses from physicians um, how widely salaries can differ between female and male physicians in a variety of fields. For example, the report states the mean salary for a female primary care physician in 2019 was 207000 compared to a mean salary of 258000 for their male counterparts. And I'm wondering, in your experiences, Dr. Mariquin and Dr. Parsons, what other gender gaps do you see specifically within your field and your practice? Okay, so I'll, I'll take this one. So we spoke of the, the numbers game, and so women now comprise slightly more than half of our current medical students. But, but unfortunately, despite the fact that probably for the last 10, 15 years, women overall have made up probably about at least 35, 40% of, of medical school graduates. When you follow that out, when you follow that pipeline out, the gender gap still exists when you think about program directors, vice chairs, professors, deans. So, so plenty of us women in the assistant professor, associate professor, but then the higher up you get, we're just not finding ourselves in those spots. So, so when you look to, to leaders, fortunately we have people like Dr. Parsons, but, but overall we're still in, in a low numbers game. So that would be something that I think we need to work on. I think the literature clearly supports that there's still a large number of gaps. The one that Dr. American talked about um, in terms of the number of senior leaders, um, women that have achieved senior leader roles, there are clearly gaps in how we publish um, and the way we are represented on publications. And there are plenty of very well done studies that show that in medicine, it's really not different than if you're interviewing or auditioning for an orchestra. So I think you've probably all seen the literature that clearly says that if you um, change auditions so that you cannot see the person who is playing the instrument, including you cannot hear them walking behind the curtain so that you cannot think maybe those are high heels and not another kind of shoe, um, the number of women dramatically increases, as does the diversity of the orchestra. So by making it blind to the individual who's auditioning, you can't really see, you immediately changed the whole structure of your orchestra. 
Um, and I think in medicine, it's really hard to do that. There have been some studies that have shown if you take CVs and you try to blind them to the gender, so you make them Jane Doe or something, I mean, you do something and you take away, you strip away everything and you make them anonymous to that extent, which is really hard to do with CVs. Um, you again start to take away some of the biases. But if you have CVs, which is what we oftentimes look at, so we, that's sort of one of the ways we analyze people, both men and women senior leaders would, would be more likely to favor actually CVs from men. So we all have implicit and other biases that we try to avoid. Um, and I think that's a societal issue because is, again, it, it's with orchestras as well as medicine. And I think that's an ongoing opportunity for us to sort of think about those you know, how can we sort of make things a little bit more equal in terms of assessment and opportunities? You know, one of the issues is for physician scientists or PhD scientists that are women, um, if your mentor is male, people worry then, you know, well, do you, are, is that a, are they going to have enough colleagues that will perceive you as somebody who will come up in the ranks? So um, I've never had that issue. I've had many, many superb male mentors, but I've also had the advantage that they not only mentored me, but they sponsored me. And that's actually really important because it means they'll promote me in other areas. So if they get asked to write a paper or a chapter, they'll say, actually, I can't do it, but Polly can, or something comes up, or have you thought about her? And I think that will help decrease the gap the more we just collectively, men, women, um, and the entire enterprise, start to think about sponsorship as well as mentorship. But there are still gaps. Now, I take some of the responsibility a little bit on my own for some of my own gaps. Um, I know inherently that I probably suffer from the things that are in the literature um, that include things like imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome, which the literature suggests is more likely to occur in women than men, although I certainly have plenty of male colleagues who have the same issue, which is you never are quite sure you belong in the room you've been invited into. So you're in a room of experts and you're like, I hope they don't figure out that I'm not the expert. Um, and if that is a tendency, even a little bit, then that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think we have to recognize that, that again, it tends to be more common in women. It definitely happens in men as well. And I see that in everything. And so recognizing that and bringing that out and saying, actually, you do belong here um, will also help with those gaps. Wow, there's really a lot of fascinating things to unpack there. Like, first off, like the fact that when things are blinded, that changes the composition of whether it's music or medicine, like it really does speak to like, what do the facts tell us? That there's a lot more equality than we give credit to in our biases. Also, um, thinking about senior leadership and where there's still a lot of progress to be made there, that kind of uh, leads into our next question. As uh, women physician leaders, what kind of attributes have you relied on most in your ability to lead successfully? And, and what advice would you have for um, other women in medicine looking to follow in your footsteps? So luck <laughs> is an attribute, right? Um, I, I always struggle with this question because I don't, I don't actually know the answer. Um, I can tell you that I did not start out either in, I didn't even think I was necessarily headed to medical school when I was in college. I actually um, was chasing monkeys in Panama for thinking I was going to graduate school. So I have not had a conscientious, this is my career path and I've stuck to it. It's been a little bit random. Um, and I think what served me well um, that I happened a lot by luck and accident is when opportunities came up, instead of saying, 
no, um, because oftentimes the opportunities came up in a context of no didn't really look like a good answer based on the person who was asking me. I said yes. And then opportunities came and there were times when I'm like, I'm going to be over my head, but I realized that it wasn't as over my head as I thought. And there were plenty of people around to help. Um, and I think that's what's served me. Um, I continue to have mentors and colleagues that I reach out to help with for all the time because you never stop needing that. You never become like the good news is you never become the ultimate I'm the leader and I can do everything. If you get to that point, you must be pretty miserable and lonely, so I can't imagine it. Um, but I do think that's part of what I see sometimes in junior faculty, and I can speak more to faculty than people in private practice, um, is sort of that reluctance to take the next step that they people need to be encouraged to do it. It's like you can do it. And I remember years ago, there were very few women in pulmonary critical care in leadership positions. And one of my male colleagues was talking to me and I'm like, yeah, there ought to be more. This really is not, it's kind of weird. And he's like, well, the few of you that do it, you kind of make it look easy. I'm like, you have got to be kidding. Because we had all just been in a, like the five women, we'd all been commiserating about, you know, we were at this national meeting and we had kids that we were trying to figure out where they were at that moment in childcare. And, you know, what am I going to do about A, B, and C? And all I could think of was, you know, if anybody talked to my two sons and thought that I had it all and that it was easy, they would get the real story. And maybe that's what we should do is actually have people talk to our spouses and children's or significant others and friends so that people realize, well, it's not easy for anybody. Um, and we all have a million balls in the air and some of them fall and you don't catch them and life goes on um, and you don't have to be perfect. I like this question a lot, so thank you. So I have to start with the caveat that I, I have three daughters, so this question is near and dear to my heart. So how do I empower my daughters to be strong, confident women in, in whatever they pursue in life? And I have a plaque in my kitchen that I refer to often. It was given to me by a good friend, another female physician juggling the roles of mother, wife, physician, soccer coach, you know, all the crazy things that we balance. And the plaque says, Here's to strong women. May we know them. May we be them. May we raise them. So I would say that would be my advice. So may we know them. So to women physicians, women physician leaders, find a network of other successful women, or maybe not so successful, but women who are juggling some similar things. So these may be classmates, they may be friends, colleagues, mentors. As Dr. Parsons said, you know, different people in your network who you, who you reach out to, you may reach out to for career advice. You may share the woes of the working mother balance or that, oh, I forgot my kids at daycare and it was 6.15 and they called me and said, hey, are you going to pick your kids up today? Oh, I forgot it was my turn. Um, you know, you share a drink and you vent about a rough day or the promotion you didn't get or the promotion that you wished maybe you applied for. And these people will encourage you to take risks and help help you with the juggle and help you realize that when the balls fall, it's okay. So that's the may we know them. May we be them. So be strong, you know, be true to yourself, be self-confident, trust your experience, your knowledge, your value. You know, we as women are guilty of underestimating our own worth just as much as others do, or probably even more so than others do. You know, take risks. Don't be afraid to stand up and say, say yes. Like Dr. Parson said, say yes. I will take on that challenge or say, I'm ready for that role because, and then list your accomplishments, list your experience, your education. 
I don't remember where I read this, but I'm sure some of you have read it as well, that men are more likely to volunteer or to be promoted to positions that they're not necessarily qualified for, but they're just expected to learn on the job. Women, on the other hand, are less likely to volunteer or to be promoted to such positions until they are fully qualified or they feel fully qualified. So, so we often are our own, our own enemies. And then last, me, may we, may we raise them. So be a role model, be a mentor, be a sponsor. When fielding a team, you know, look for diversity, advocate for those with a smaller voice, be inclusive and in inviting, having a succession plan, who's going to fill this role when I leave, retire, when I move up, having a succession plan is an essential leadership activity. Thank you both so much for those words. They're very, very, very inspiring. And I really like what you sort of both alluded to about getting through rough times or getting through times when the ball drops and being open to talking about it and, you know, being a mentor for, for folks when that happens to them and sort of moving forward with that. Our next question is sort of on the same lines. Um, so one thing, you know, that I've heard from female colleagues and I've experienced myself is that female voices are frequently ignored or dismissed during day-to-day -day clinical discussions when you're rounding, you know, in other clinical spaces. Has that ever been your experience? And, and if so, how do you think the clinical workspace can better support the voices of female physicians and physicians in training? Yeah, it's definitely, I've definitely experienced it probably a lot more 20 years ago or more. I think it happens a little bit less now because I think more of our colleagues in general are aware of it. Um, I think there's several things that you can do. One is, is if you see it happen to somebody else, acknowledge it. Say, wait a minute, I just heard her say that <laughs> or or reaffirm it so for example if dr mariquin made uh, you know made a suggestion i could say actually I, that's a really good suggestion and so you amplify the voice so you help by amplifying somebody else's voice um and then the other thing is sometimes you you just need to have a conversation with your colleagues and because I'll, sometimes they don't understand what what they're doing so sometimes it can be somebody who just always talks over everybody, all right? And so you just have to say, is that something that happens to everybody or is it gender related? Um, and, and that's one conversation to say, you know, you're always talking, nobody else ever gets to, to be to have a conversation. Nobody ever gets to be able to have a, a word in edgewise. And, you know, if you're a medical student and it's an attending doing that, that's pretty hard, but sometimes talking to a resident who can also kind of help with those conversations. And I remember as a medical student and resident having an attending who literally talked all the time. And finally, we together collaboratively went to another attending and said, hey, the guy's great, but can you help us with this? Because we're not even able to answer, ask questions on rounds. Um, and then the other times is sometimes it's, you know, what's now known in the verbiage is mansplaining. And it's pretty obvious sometimes, and it's pretty irritating. Um, it depends on the situation as to whether or not you address it directly then or you do it outside the patient's room and you have a conversation and say you know, it, that you can have a voice and you can simply say, you know, listen, I, I really appreciate you explaining that to me, but I'm not sure you needed to. Um, so there are ways to manage it. The, the most important thing is to take a deep breath <laughs> um, because it will happen. And I'm not saying it's okay that it happens, but it will happen. And and you can get, you can go off the rails pretty quickly. I find myself doing that. You get pretty angry and it's like, I can't believe this is happening. 
and then there's never a good solution there. And so you have to sort of go to a higher level, which is like, really, I have to behave better than everybody else and, and be the leader here. Um, but sometimes that's what's required. But does it happen? Absolutely. Um, and it'll happen with patients, it will happen with colleagues, it will happen with attendings, it will happen, it happens socially as well, right? So just kind of being aware of it, say, where is it coming from? Is there an easy solution here? Is there a conversation I can have? Or is it that I'm reluctant to speak up and maybe I need to be a little bit more, not aggressive, because that's not a term that works very well, but there are times when I realize I haven't been heard and it's not because they weren't listening to me, it's because I did not, I was not clear. And so you just want to be sure that's not part of the issue as well. So uh, this is a, this is a tough one. I, I definitely would echo much of what Dr. Parsons said. And we can advocate for each other and speak up and revisit things, refer back to a classmate's comments. But personally for me, I would say I'm, I have been in the past, as Dr. Parsons said, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it, it might've been a different environment and I was a different person. I, I wasn't nearly as confident as, as I have become over my uh, years in medicine. So my voice has become louder the longer I'm in medicine. And, and I mean that figuratively, but my daughters would probably say, you know, different. <laughs> but if I'm in the OR with a new team or a new team member, in the past, I may have thought, oh, you know, their time is, is too valuable and why interrupt and say hello, let's just get on with the day. But, but now I, I understand that not only is it important for the healthcare team, but it's also important for, for my confidence and, and, where I, and where I sit on that team. So I confidently sort of, you know, stop the day in the beginning and introduce myself and, and what my role is on that team. And I introduce my students and my residents as well, because not only is is that important for the team, but it's important for every member of the team. And, and also, I would say, similarly to Dr. Parsons, early in my career, I sit in on grand rounds or clinic, you know, clinical rounds, and, and I'm hesitant to make a comment because I think, oh, what if I'm wrong? Or what if somebody thinks that's, well, obvious? Of course, why, of course that's what we all were thinking. So then I wait, and then, of course, you know, someone raises their hand and asks the very same questions I was about to ask or comment the very same way I would have, and I thought, oh, why, why didn't I speak up? Or worse yet, nobody makes the comment, and then, you know, days later or weeks later, something comes up, and I think, why didn't I just mention that in the meeting, or why didn't I just mention that in clinic rounds? So, so once again, a, a little bit of the theme is, you know, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. The, the more you step out of your comfort zone, the bigger your comfort zone becomes, even if it starts up with just, you know, speaking out on, on patients round. And, and as Dr. Parsons and I had both said, it's okay to be wrong. And it's okay sometimes when the balls fall, but, but rounds are for learning um, for everyone. Those sound like some, you know, really uh, important things to be thinking about for everyone in, in a team, medical team, how can we best support each other um, and, and make each other more confident? Uh, and I think a lot of uh, what you talked about, uh, both Dr. Parsons and Dr. Merrickwin are, are skills that you, know, you found uh, to help yourself stand out. One thing that we're thinking about, especially Matt and I, as men, 
uh, in medicine or that, uh, you know, we want to be part of the growing movement of men who are committed to supporting uh, the women uh, around them, uh, such as the uh, hashtag he for she uh, movement. The ACP has actually published a, a recent article titled the top 10 things you can do to impact gender equity in medicine. And we definitely encourage our listeners to uh, check out that link on the website and there'll be a link in the description. But I guess speaking kind of directly to your male colleagues and to us also as male medical students, uh, what can we do to better support uh, our female colleagues? So I would say the first thing is to challenge the the just like me habits. So we all, all of us, it's just human nature. We tend to choose people who look like us. So that could include gender, ethnicity, culture. So you wanna try to diversify your circle, diversify your team. So challenge, challenge the, oh, they're a really likable person, therefore they should be on my team. Challenge that um, in your mind. The other thing I would say would be give women credit both public credit, hey, that was a really great comment on rounds, or wow, what a wonderful idea. And then even one-on-one, hey, um, Santa, your presentation last week was really spot on. I learned a lot. Because because as we've already shared with you, we tend to um, feel like we're imposters and we tend to discredit ourselves uh, more so than others would. So a little bit of um, credit and support will probably go a long way. And lastly, I would say support and mentor women. You know, we talk about having support, having mentors, having sponsors. It doesn't mean you need a sponsor or mentor of the same gender. It's actually better to to diversify your your sponsor and your mentor network. So support and mentor women and be a cheerleader. So I credit much of my success to my husband, who's my biggest fan and has far more confidence in my skill and my abilities than I do. So, um, So be a good cheerleader for us women too. Yeah, I would echo all those things. And I think the other thing that's actually maybe even easier, because some of those sound a little hard sometimes, is always look around. So if you look around you and there are no women, ask why not. So I certainly do this with my junior and senior colleagues. If you're asked to be on a panel and the panel's all men, ask why. If you're asked to um, write a paper or participate in a clinical trial and it's all men, ask why that is. If you're doing class projects and you look around and you've only chosen male colleagues or you've been chosen by a male colleague and it's all male colleagues, ask why the group isn't more diverse, not just women, but everything else. And that goes a long way. Um, And we've actually had some pretty significant issues that came up where literally there were panels at major meetings that were all men. You see this a lot. Um, There were major expert consensus statements that had all men where it was clear there were very, very qualified women who had not been invited to participate. And when I ended up being the one tagged to address that, which is never my favorite role, but I called up one of my friends who was one of the males on the panel and on the consensus statement and said, listen, people are really upset. And he said, why? And I said, because there were no women. And he's like, he said, I didn't even think of it. I'm like, I know. So if you can think of it, 
that will go a really long way. And now that is part of his lexicon. He looks around and he makes his other colleagues do the same. And it's like, if there are no women or there's no diversity, he always asks why. And the reason can't be, well, we asked one and they said no, because we're all kind of busy. Um, it has to be, oh, yeah, let's fix this. And don't participate if people can't fix it. And that, that goes a long way to not propagating a problem and to making things more inclusive. So it's just, I mean, I do the same thing now. If I walk into a room and it's all women, I oftentimes will say, why? So is this because it's a women's issue and we all should be women in here? That makes perfect sense. Um, if not, let's think about making it more collaborative. If I'm the only woman on a large panel or a large group, which happens not infrequently, I will oftentimes say, this is a little lonely. I'm a little, I understand, I think maybe we can do better. And, and my colleagues know me well enough now that they don't take that personally. They, it's more of a, oh, oh yeah, we'd look around again and do it. So I think it's really important to just look around and if everybody looks like you, ask how that happened and how, and, and maybe make it better. I love the idea of, of being so intentional when you're, in a group like that and making it making purposeful statements to ensure that people are thinking actively about you know how to improve a situation and how to make a group more diverse i think that's really great advice our last question is you know for students residents and fellows in our audience what considerations do you think women in medicine should make when choosing a supportive career path and setting well the first thing i would say is don't think you can't do whatever you want okay so don't close any doors don't think something's gonna to be too hard or it wouldn't be possible to do that and not be a mom or it wouldn't be possible to do that and be an Olympic skier. Whatever it is that you're trying to combine with your career, don't think it's impossible, okay? It could be hard, but it's not, don't ever think that something, that you couldn't do something. And I think that's where some people get stuck. It's like, oh, I really don't think I can do that and do this other thing. You can make anything work if you want to. Again, balls are gonna fall. Some of it is gonna be harder. So the, more, the most important thing is don't close any doors. If you, if you say, I really want to be X, then go for being X. Don't let somebody dissuade you and saying, well, there aren't any women in that field or that one's harder or whatever it is. I mean, you can go in with eyes open. The other thing is, is, is you know, try to make sure that as you go along your career path, you consistently do have mentors and sponsors um, and that you you both, you're a good mentee as well as you have a good mentor. And oftentimes you're multiple mentors. So there may be somebody you talk to about your clinical work. There's a clinical mentor because you may say, boy, I'm just not, it's really hard for me to get my charts done and do all these other things. It would be really great if I had a few more hours in the day and a clinical mentor can help you. You may need a research mentor. You may have somebody you talk to about teaching. You may have somebody you talk to just about, as Dr. Mariquin said, I just left my child at daycare. Um, and so having a, a big group of mentors, and they don't all have to be formal mentors, they're formal relationships and they're informal ones, is really important. And also look for an environment that suits you. So I ought to talk, when, when, we, when we do the resident recruitment piece, um, and I think about everybody coming to interview for our residency program, you know how it is when you go to a college campus, it either feels right or it doesn't. Remember those days of looking at colleges, and I've now, I don't know how many times you've done it yet, Bridget. I've done it twice, okay? I've seen every small liberal arts school in New England. Um, and you go to one and it's awesome. And you go to the next one and they really kind of look the same, I got to tell you. And that one apparently isn't awesome. It's because it doesn't feel right, all right? There's something about it that's different and unique. 
So you need to find you need to find an environment that feels right. And and there'll be some where people will tell you that's the right one for you. And you'll be like, boy, it feels pretty miserable. And don't go to that one. Don't don't go to something that's miserable unless there's a brief period of misery that gets you to something you really want, then that's a, a choice. But there's always an environment that is, you know, nurturing, that you feel comfortable, that you're good with your colleagues, that you can drop balls and they'll pick them up and you'll do the same for them. So, so that would be my advice. And there are lots of opportunities out there. So, you know, for sure, I would say find a specialty that you're passionate about. And as Dr. Parsons said, don't, don't let other factors limit you or narrow, narrow your choices. So as, as many of you know, I changed careers. And once again, I have to mention my husband because he gave me some sage advice. He said, you know, honey, as much blood, sweat, and tears we put into this job, this job of being a physician every day, I want you to be happy. So I, I took his advice and I, and I changed my specialty. So that's another little bit of piece of advice is that you're, you're never too old to change your mind. But residency is a long haul and hopefully the career afterwards is, is longer. So find something that you love, that you, that you want to get out of bed and go to work every day and do. And, you know, I would, I would definitely would say, you know, don't compare the numbers of males or females in the specialty you're considering. I mean, look at anesthesiology, only 23% women, which I have to say, I, I didn't even really know until I looked at the AAMC website last fall and that, that, surprised me, but then when I looked back, it maybe didn't really surprise me. There, there aren't a lot of us women, but, but I've been able to find a supportive network of mentors. I, find, I found some great mentees. I've had academic challenges. I've had successes. I've had some failures. But no matter what field you pursue, you, you will find all of those as well. So, you know, if you, if you put your heart and soul into it, you, you, will, have, you will have those things as well. Um, and of course, we've mentioned this too, don't limit yourself to just female mentors or sponsors or limit yourself to those in your field of medicine. I have, I have you know, mentors who, who are in completely different specialties and, and some who, who aren't even in medicine, but I pick up the phone and I call them and say, I need some help, I need some guidance. Um, but there are lots of accomplished you know, folks out there who are ready to help uh, raise good physician and, and raise uh, great physician leaders. So thank you for, uh, thank you for asking us these important questions. Well, thank you both for answering our questions with all of your experience and wisdom and advice. Um, it's been so informative and inspiring and educational. I think we all can take something away from what you've said today. So we really appreciate it. Thank you again so much for your time and stay tuned for more updates from Green Mountain Medicine Podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you all. Heartfelt invitation. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai. And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.